You are listening to From Up, the Fermented Food Podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week, as it gets close to Independence Day in the United States, thinking about fermented foods as sides and as so much more. All this and more in episode 72. So, Brandon, we talked about skate and fermented skate and this really interesting fermentation that takes place in um, Korea last week. In yes. Last, in our last episode, right? Yes. Well, one of the questions I had um, to you was, is skate something that's only found in the waters of Korea? Because I don't really know. It's not something I've ever heard of. I've, I've heard of skate and... Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not something that when you go to a restaurant, you see it on the menu. So I did some research and looked it up. And actually, skate is mildly popular in the United States. Um, it's mostly found in, from Maine to North Carolina, like mostly around Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So like, you know, the New England states. Um, and I guess there's a lot of different species of skate. I mean, this is how much I did not know about skate at all. But, um, you know, when I was doing all of this research, which I found um, at NOAA, which um, I forget the name of the acronym NOAA, what it stands for, but it's, I just know that it's um, a fish watch. Um, They talk all about seafood and different kinds of fish and rates and populations and stuff like that. And, um, but anyway, I digress there for a second. Um, the most popular species of skates, skate that humans or North Americans, Americans eat are the winter skate. It's mostly eaten like fillets. And the wings of the skate, you can get two fillets out of each wing. So I guess you can get four uh, fillets total out of one skate. And how does it taste? Um, it says that it's supposed to be very mild in flavor flavor and sim- similar to scallops, which sounds pretty good. I like scallops, but, you know, it sounds like when you ferment it, that is just something I'm not into. So I think that's really interesting that I would eat fresh skate, but maybe not the fermented Korean style skate. They still look freaky to me, though. I mean, no offense to skate, but they they look a little scary with that little face thing that they've got on the bottom of them. I I almost feel like in the, the, the your description of it doesn't sound bad. And it doesn't seem like as much like, I mean, because it's, I guess people eat shark and stuff too. I mean, it's not like it's that weird for people to eat skate. Uh, yeah. So for all of the listeners that already knew that people are eating skate, sorry that we did not have better information on the fact that, uh, you know, at least for myself, like I've got the excuse of living inland. And so there definitely is no skate here. And did you find out, is there any in California area or is it all on the East coast side? No, it looks like it's, it sounds like it's mostly, um, dominant in the, on the East coast, um, and up and down the Eastern seaboard. I didn't see anything about California, Oregon, Washington. Um, so it must just mostly be a, an Atlantic type fish, but, but I don't know because, um, Korea, I mean, that's not anywhere close to the Atlantic ocean. Um, but the Pacific ocean is, I mean, that's a really big ocean. It's a lot bigger than the Atlantic ocean. So there could be some here and maybe just the populations are so small that we don't even notice it. But um, or maybe I don't know how similar um, skate is to stingrays. I think we had mentioned they're maybe in the same family. Um, I know that we've mentioned that they look a, a lot alike, um, just not not the creepy eyes that we've been talking about in the cartoonish figure that skate have com- compared to stingrays, but um, just like the sh- same body shape. Uh 
but yeah, that's all I really found about it. But I thought that, I mean, I never really heard, you know, not heard of skate. I've heard of it, but just have never really thought much of it. it. Again, it's not something you go to a restaurant to when you order skate. Yeah. At least not, not around any of the parts that we frequent, I guess. And and that's the thing is we're kind of started talking about what last week we did talked about fermented skate, which is probably a very small subset of our listeners that actually make. And if anyone does make it, please do let us know. Or if anyone is planning to make skate, like maybe you live on the East coast and want to try fermenting it, please let us know how it goes. But in general, most people in the United States at least aren't making fermented skate as a food. And so like thinking about ferments in general, like what are people making and, and, you know, thinking more about like the cookbook that I have coming out soon about like all the base kind of ferments that people can make from vegetables and dairy and grain and legume and different beverages that people make really kind of got, uh, Allison and I talking in, in just different ways about like, what is it about fermentation, like fermentation in general is a really broad topic. So, so maybe thinking of fermentation is kind of tough, but like, if we think about a lot of the different kinds of ferments, a lot of them are supplementary pieces to a meal. Like they're the, the side dishes. And so like kind of what I was trying to do when I, when I was, uh, writing and, and devising recipes and different stuff. And kind of what I do in general is when I'm fermenting things at home, like I'm trying to, to, to figure out how can I incorporate this into my life. And then that's something that I think is kind of tough with, with just thinking about things as side dishes or condiments, like something like sauerkraut works great. Like, especially like 4th of July here in the United States coming up real soon. Great on a hot dog, but not everyone likes sauerkraut every single day or every week. And so making a huge batch of sauerkraut sometimes isn't necessarily um, sustainable in the sense of st- sustainable to like taste and preference and, and interest. Like I know for myself, when I first started fermenting many years ago, it was like, I'd make sometimes large amounts of different vegetables or otherwise, but then at the same time I would lose interest a little bit just because I my, my palate just got tired of, of the same thing over and over again. And, and at that point I wasn't really incorporating things or like making something like sourdough and making sourdough breads well, my sourdough starter would be nice and strong while I was making those breads, but then I would kind of dwindle out of interest and not be making as many breads or get busy and not have time to make breads. And so then my sourdough starter would, would kind of fall apart because I didn't have any kind of recipes or other uses for that sourdough starter. And, uh, I had plenty of times where like the sourdough starter would get nice and gray, but like in general, like I just didn't, I, I would kill sourdough starters. I sometimes would uh, allow, uh, yogurts to starters to just kind of die off because, you know, I'd go through different phases and be interested in different things. But at some point I realized, Hey, if I use some of these things more as ingredients, then I can enjoy them as a side condiment and I can enjoy them as an ingredient in a food. But like thinking about like, kind of, we're thinking about talking this time. It's like just about like these thinking about these things as the side dishes that they are like, what kind of things can people make and how are they generally consumed? So something like sauerkraut, that one's easy. What else can you think of? Well, um, yogurts, I mean, we use a lot of yogurts, um, and we add it to, uh, two dishes, um, before or even after they've cooked. Um, because we feel like we, we add Greek yogurt to our eggs in the morning, not because of the probiotics, because they are killed, um, when in the heating process of like cooking scrambled eggs, but, we just feel as if it's a lot healthier than maybe using um, cream cheese or something like that. Um, and it makes them really fluffy and uh, it gives them like this different kind of flavor and texture and just makes them a little different than eggs. But yeah, we've my husband and I have gone through periods of time where we've made tons of sauerkraut or um, kombucha or all sorts of stuff. And then we don't use it because we don't have any idea of how to use it besides what it's what you would 
originally think of it for as a side dish or just a beverage. And so what Um, happens to that sauerkraut? Are you able to like consume it all or does some of it just get to be too sour and old in the back of the refrigerator and it sadly ends up getting tossed out? Or like, do you, do you figure out something to always do with those? No, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, you know, sometimes we use it all or we find, we find ways to use it all. And other times, um, it just gets too sour or we just get so tired of eating it that we throw it away or give it away or something like that. So, um, you know, we're always on the quest to find new ways of using these ferments that we make at home and spend so much time on. And, um, you know, in a way too, like ferments are, they're relatively inexpensive to make, but also at the same time, when you're doing it, you want to make a lot of it. Um, and then you get into that trouble of like, well, you know, like I can only eat so much sauerkraut as a side or kimchi as a side or yogurt as a side. How can I incorporate this into, um, other meals? Um, like adding, uh, you know, cheese is kind of an obvious one. I mean, that's a fermented product that we Americans eat tons, literally tons of, and we put it on top of everything and you just assume it that it's um, an ingredient. But other things like what I just said with um, uh, yogurts and adding them to eggs for breakfast in the morning or something like that, like that was just something we stumbled upon. Um, as an alternative to, um, something that was a little healthier and just added some different kind of texture. And and I think that can be huge because sometimes it's something like yogurt. Yes. It's very easy to get yogurt at at the store, but certain other things, if a person is, is interested in experimenting in the kitchen and trying different kinds of flavors, sure. There's things like butter and then you can go a step further and get cultured butter. I mean, so that's, that's probably one of the few cultured butters, one of the few ferments that's generally not consumed as anything but an ingredient. I go and I guess put it on bread or whatnot. Maybe that's not an ingredient. Maybe that's more like a condiment uh, still, but in general, like butter is something that is thought of as an ingredient. It's a cultured butter traditionally wasn't something that was actively fermented. Now, like I have to actively ferment because I'm not milking my own cows and putting it into churns to age over a few days as I get enough cream to to make the butter and and churn it. Like I'm not doing the old traditional way. So like for myself, like I'm actively culturing butter to make cultured butter, but using that as an ingredient or using that as a spread way better. And it's possible to get that at the store, but I find for myself, that's definitely one that I like to make at home because it's not only generally less expensive, but it's, it just fresh cultured butter just tastes amazing. And then that way I can also, this is like everything for myself kind of loops around, like for heirloom yogurts that I make each one of those, I can use as a cultured butter or a cultured whipped cream. So I can, I can culture cream with any of my heirloom yogurts and then I get a slightly different flavored cream. So I get a slightly different flavored cultured butter or a different whipped cream. And so all of those kind of things I like to think about because it starts to unlock possibilities of things that aren't necessarily available commercially. And so for myself, like that's a huge selling point for me to make a lot of these things at home is for one, the experimentation, but then also the flavor potential that isn't always available commercially. Or if it is, uh, it's something that would be like a special treat. If a person's going to get it regularly, because it's maybe more expensive because there's a lot more, um, a lot more work put into it. But if a person's able to is, has the time and make, can make it at home, then making some of these things as ingredients can be amazing. Like something like, um, you know, like you're talking about cheeses. Yeah, definitely. People understand, eat those raw, eat those in, in foods, mix that around. But like, you're talking about like sauerkraut, like the idea of make, making a lot of sauerkraut or making a lot of kimchi or making a lot of any kind of vegetable ferment. I think there are two camps. Like, I think there are other people that are, are 
very good about making just enough or maybe it's only one person or a couple people and like they don't eat that much and they know they don't eat that much. And so they can make just a small mason jar of it. Um, and then it sounds like there's the people like you and I that like, well, I, I want to make a lot of it because I enjoy making fermented vegetables. But at the same time, if I can make it a little bit more efficient by chopping a bunch of vegetables all at the same time, that's kind of my preference. I just like to like to do one big bulk thing because it's kind of fun to like, okay, this is going to be a big project and I'm going to do it and I'm going to accomplish it. And then for the most part, I'm not going to have to do anything else for these fermented vegetables besides check on them. And then when they're ready, enjoy them. Right. And that's exactly what we do here at my house is um, we make a lot of say, uh, and we, I keep using sauerkraut just because it seems as if like it's, it's such an easy vegetable fermentation to do. And anyone can start up making um, sauerkraut Um and it can go into so many different things too. You don't have to eat it just by itself. Like um, the problem that we, you know, we would make maybe a gallon of it and that's not really a lot, but for two people, that's a, that's a lot of sauerkraut. Now if we had like, I mean, our family is growing, but that, you know, if we had like four kids already and we all ate sauerkraut, we could probably eat it as a side. Or if we we're having a really big party, we could um, eat it as a side. But, you know, after a while, you kind of get tired of eating it just like that. So it's more of a quest and kind of part of the fun in fermentation, too, is like, how can I use this uh, before it goes before it goes way far to the sour side where it's, you know, you can't even use it anymore because it's not that it's bad, but it's just not like to your like personal preference or liking. How can we use this to make some other types of foods and incorporate it into other foods? Um, like putting it, like mixing it in with, um, fresh greens or salads. Uh, we've done that a few times where we've made fermented vegetables and then mixed them in with like fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables that we've gotten from the farmer's market or, um, chopping up really fine and, um, mixing them with maybe already made, um, um, not, not cottage cheese, um, sour, um, oh, uh, uh, schmears like, um, that you would put on bagels. Oh, sure. Kind of mixing those all together. And that's a great flavor. Um, like it's kind of the, the same as roasted vegetables, but just a little more sour and it kind of gives a little kick to um, like your bagels in the morning or like toast. Um, so we've done that a few times. So it's more of just like, how can we figure out how to make something out of what we already have? Exactly. And so it sometimes takes a little bit of, of thinking and forethought into like, okay, what am I going to do with this stuff? And how am I going to continue to use it so that it doesn't just sit in the back of the refrigerator? Then there are things that are different than like, say, sauerkraut or those vegetables. And because that can, if a person starts thinking in that way, it's, it's really can start to open up and be a lot easier to come up with ideas as to how to use vegetables. Uh, it's just how to use saltier and sourier vegetables, but things like sourdough starter. Like I know that like a lot of people run out of time and they're not able to make sourdough all the time. And while it's not that difficult to make sourdough starter, sometimes people don't want to start up new sourdough starter that they let dwindle and die off. Um, and so like the idea of not making a lot of sourdough uh, bread, how to keep that alive or even making sourdough bread on a regular basis. Like we do in our house for the most part, like, we also like to use the sourdough for other things. So I'll use it for making a kvass. So like making a, like a beverage with, with old rye 
bread and sourdough starter, uh, making things like, uh, waffles with sourdough and yogurt. And, you know, I like, I try and throw in as many different kinds of things. And if I want to make a, a savory pancake, I can also th- throw in some of those fermented vegetables in there as well. Uh, and some cheese. I mean, I, and, and then finish it off with some cultured butter. And, uh, and if, if it's not a savory one, then going with some cultured whipped cream and, uh, I don't know, f- fermented, maple syrup i see see that's where it's like i start to get it's like okay well how fermented can i make this and i've never had fermented maple syrup but i'm just wondering it's like okay what how far can i push something in the fermented direction not as much for like a gimmicky sense of like let's make this as fermented as possible but sometimes the flavors can change enough where it's really kind of exciting it makes something like waffles or or something else just pop and it's like this is new and exciting to me and now i'm going to be making this every sunday for a while until i get sick of this and have to figure out some other thing else to make yeah exactly that's what uh that's what we do and the other thing that i that i completely forgot to mention but you pinpointed um just as a last note was also um adding fermented veg- like vegetables to other things they add so much salt that you don't even need to or different kinds of acidic flavors that you don't even need to salt anything and um that i think is really interesting because i i love salt i w- i salt everything it's terrible terrible habit but when i use something that i fermented i don't feel as if i have to because it was either brined before or they created so many different amazing flavors um that i don't have to and yeah and you know like making savory pancakes is a great example um, of not that I don't salt pancakes or anything like that, but using sourdough or leftover sourdough starter that would basically be considered waste, um, to create a savory pancake with, um, cultured butter on top, um, with, and then maybe adding some fermented fruit on top, which then would make it more on the sweet side, but it's still like fermented fruits are not really that sweet. Um, it's more on, in my opinion, something savory and, um, but it just had so much different flavor and texture to it. Oh yeah. And as a side tangent, so you don't put salt in your pancakes? Is that correct? Well, I do. I do when I'm like making pancakes. Um, but when I'm making sourdough pancakes, I do not, yes. or I wait to see how it tastes and maybe do a test, do like one of those testers that you're supposed to do before you start making, you know, five or six at one time. Um, and also to make sure that your skillet is hot enough. Um, I'm, or, you know, they, rec- you know, they, as in other people recommend, uh, doing a test batch to make sure your skillet's hot enough. Uh, I'll, I'll do one and see how it tastes. And if I need to add some salt just to get that, cause if you don't add salt to breads, um, they just feel or taste, um, what is the word I'm looking for? You've probably experienced unsalted bread. Oh yeah. It just is lacking flavor. Um, but with ferments or fermented, um, uh, bread products like sourdough and stuff like that, you don't really have to add a ton of salt. Um, I no, mean, it's already definitely in not. The, it's already in the starter in a way. And I highly recommend against adding a ton of salt. There was one time where my, my wife accidentally mixed up the salt and the sugar in a pancake recipe, a non-fermented, oh, no. non-anything. Ooh, that was <laughs> salty. And I like salt, but and, and she likes salt too, but that was nearly unedible. But it was, uh, we, we managed to choke a few down, but just definitely, yeah, pay attention to the salt if you're going to do it. But uh, anyway, there, there are a lot of things that people can do with fermented foods and thinking about them as more than a, a side dish. And so like, again, with 4th of July coming right up, like if nothing else, think about what other kind of ferments can you pile on top of that hot dog? If that's what you're so having, or like a hamburger, like kimchi and hamburger taste excellent. Um, and there are just so many things that a person can 
can ferment at home and keep fermenting and make a sustainable habit just because it's exciting to add these different ingredients to other foods. And so we'll kind of get into that a little bit more next week because next week, as my cookbook is soon approaching to being released, we thought we'd kind of just kind of do a yeah, maybe sort of an interviewish type thing where go over the, the cookbook and the thoughts behind that. And, and this kind of is tied into that a little bit. And so if any of this talk has kind of piqued your interest too, definitely do head over to fermentationhandbook.com where I put a little landing page together so that you can see some of the images from the cookbook coming up and otherwise. But also for any of you listeners, I also wanted to do something a little special trying to think about like, okay, if anyone wants to pre-order the book, what could I do as a little thank you? And if you pre-order the book, I decided that I'm going to record or I'm in the process of recording the first 30-ish pages of the book. So the introductory, the non-recipe, because most of the books are recipes, but just the, you know, the first, I don't know exactly how long that's going to be, but the first 30 pages or so, uh, the fermentation one section and the basic section, I'm just going to record that as an audiobook because I really like listening to audiobooks. This book isn't available as an audiobook, so it's just for you if you decide to pre-order and it's on an honor system. So if you pre-order, send me out a, a tweet with an at reply to firm, firm up or Brandon Byers, or send me an email, Brandon at firmup.com. Any way you can get a hold of me, I just go to firmup.com and find the contact information there and let me know that you pre-order the book and I'll send you a link to the MP3 file. And um, it's not a finished, polished audiobook, but it will sound good. It should, it should hopefully sound even a little better than these podcasts do because I'll have a little bit more time to just kind of put into into that. But just as a way to say thank you if you want to pre-order. So go check it out at fermentationhandbook.com. And then for this episode, we'll put in those links about the skate and otherwise, and you can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 72. And you can also find us on Twitter at firmup, on Facebook at firmup, and anywhere else at firmup. And until next time, firm up.